Welcome inside the season two finale of the Igloo. Last, se- last season, it was uh, Pat Madden from the Big, Big Biggie's blog concluding it, but obviously things have been bigger in season two. Uh, big time, a lot of big time guests this year, um, but I don't think I should end this season with any other guests. Uh, back inside the Igloo, uh, proud to welcome back. Um, guy I'm proud to call my friend, a colleague, you name it. It's none other than John Fanza. John, welcome back, man. Tim, it's great to be with you, and thanks very much for having me. Uh, always love stepping in the igloo with you, my friend, and uh, to end season two with a bang. I love everything you've done with this podcast, and uh, season three, I'm sure, will be filled with even more excitement. So thanks again, and happy to put a bow on season two with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to spoil much, but I mean, season three, now that, you know, we're going to be, you know, back in person, you know, doing stuff, I think that'll just up the ante even more. Uh, But uh, yeah, let's just talk about this past season. It was obviously probably the most difficult to navigate through in the history of this sport. Um, You know, starting late, you know, right, it was the day before Thanksgiving where everything got started. And, you know, some teams were lucky enough to avoid the COVID bug. Others not as fortunate, but overall, I think as a whole, I mean, yes, you have those teams that were really hit hard DePaul, Xavier, uh, to name a few, but I think overall as a whole, I think the fact that you got 96 of the 110 scheduled conference games in, I, I, I think overall, if you're in the Big East front office, you've got to consider that a success. It is a success and it's a credit to those in the Big East front office for doing all they did to reschedule games, to make possibilities work to get with coaches and figure out how are we going to get this back on the books? How are we going to make sure this game gets played? They reached a point in the season where games couldn't get rescheduled just by logistical purposes. And you got to play a conference tournament in March. You have to wrap up your conference season, but to have 96, the 110 played says a lot about the people that are running men's basketball at the big East. The priority sport in this league was preserved. And that is what it's all about. That's what last year was about. Can you find a way to preserve the priorities that you do have amidst the pandemic? And the Big East found a way to put together a a collective season, a season that, look, it did not go as planned for programs like Xavier, for even a program like Seton Hall, teams, Providence as well, teams that expect to make the NCAA tournament or programs that have that expectation, Tim, that fell short. But there were still good things to take out of last year. Uh, I, I think that you touched on it with Xavier. And then the other school that really got impacted by coronavirus was Butler. And Butler barely played their non-conference schedule, and they were extremely young. Yet that young team grew as the season went on. And that growth, I think, will really be shown here in this 2021-22 season. In terms of results, do you want more than four NCAA tournament teams? You absolutely do. And that's not meeting the bar. But you had multiple second weekend teams. You know, you think about there's 350 college basketball programs. If you've got two or three or four out of the final 16 left, you're still in a good place. You have a place at that dinner table. Creighton and Villanova, had a place at that table. For Creighton, this was their first Sweet 16, as it's been known in the 64-68 team tournament format. It was their first Sweet 16 ever in that format. 
in, in this tournament format currently. For Villanova, to lose Colin Gillespie, you would have thought season-ending, right? I give them credit for responding and finding a way to the second weekend despite losing their leader. So you have to look at some of those things while also acknowledging the fact that there's some programs who didn't meet the bar that are going to be looking to bounce back this year. And it was a league filled with young talent last season. You lost Marcus Howard. You lost Miles Powell. Um, you lost a couple of other notable players like Tyshawn Alexander. Najee uh, Marshall. Uh, Najee Marshall as well. And you had to figure out a way to recover from that, which is what good programs do, but also knowing you have a lot of young talent. And I look at the freshmen from last year that are going to be sophomores, Posh Alexander being one of them, uh, Chuck Harris for Butler being another. You know, th there's a bunch of guys, even an Andre Jackson who was hurt, Jalen, uh, Dante Harris rather, for Georgetown, Ryan Kalkbrenner at Creighton, like, Justin Lewis at Marquette. There's a bunch of guys that were freshmen last year that are going to take the leap heading into this season. And they still showed us a lot of good flashes last year. The league was young last year. The Big East was very young. With another year of experience, you should get five or six NCAA tournament teams this year. Yeah, and I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, speaking of, you know, surprises, I mean, Butler with their youth, you know, they, they turned some heads and, you know, a seven and three home record, including upsets of Villanova and Creighton at Hinkle, you know, even with limited attendance, Hinkle magic still existed um, to quite the degree. Um, and then you also had obviously St. John's. I mean, some people had expectations for them. They were picked ninth in the preseason poll, but that St. John's team, uh, they grew up. I mean, they, they were, they looked like they were down and out around MLK day. And then, all of a sudden, you see Posh Alexander morph this team into a legitimate NCAA tournament contender. I think they have to be the front runner as this year's most surprising team. Um, well, obviously, Georgetown, we obviously they, they were surprising themselves winning the Big East tournament, but in the regular season, most surprising team, hands down, has to be St. John's. Absolutely. I liken St. John's in college basketball to what my Cleveland Browns have been to the football world. All right, bear with me for a second. That, that let me take you into a, a, another universe, okay? Here, here's what I think about, Tim. St. John's University, big brand, tradition, Lou Carnesecca. Uh, you think of the 80s. You think of Chris Mullen. You think of Mark Jackson. You know, you, you think of some of the all-time greats. All right, but let's look at that. The Browns, the Cleveland Browns. Jim Brown, uh, 1964, the last time that the Browns won a championship. But a traditional brand, uh, a brand that was ruling football at one point, that was really uh, right near the top of the league, time in and time out. Both those programs, okay, St. John's, St. John's has been stuck and for a while was stuck in, in college basketball Irrelevance. They weren't winning. They had dysfunction. They couldn't find the right coach. It was one guy comes in, he transfers out. They had no sort of competency. They had no sort of consistency. The Browns went through a period of misery. But Tim, you know this, St. John's brand has never gone away. People know that when St. John's is hot, New York is buzzing. When St. John's is playing well, the garden is rolling. When the Browns are playing well, look at the television ratings. Look at the, 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 
the tradition of the brand comes back and people, I, I think people think that they're a really fun story. You know, people are interested to see what, what does their fan base look like this season? What's happened is leadership is in place for St. John's. Leadership is now in place. They have a president of the university, Father Brian Shanley, who comes over from Providence. Father Shanley built up the Providence basketball program. I mean, he's part of the reason why they hired Ed Cooley. Big part. You have an AD in Mike Craig who comes over from Duke with Mike Krzyzewski. And you have a coach now in Mike Anderson who's never had a losing season. He finds his point guard, Posh Alexander. Posh Alexander was the first Big East defensive player and freshman of the year in the same season since Allen Iverson. Posh Alexander is big time. Julian Champagny's a bucket. They had seven kids transfer out, right? They made up for it with Montez Mathis from Rutgers, with Aaron Wheeler from Purdue, with Steph Smith from Vermont. They bring in um, Joel Soriano as well, picking up a Fordham transfer. This St. John's team has addressed the needs of size. They've addressed the needs of physicality. They have a point guard. Can they shoot the basketball well on the perimeter? We'll see. And they have a premier scorer in Champagny. St. John's will be an NCAA tournament team this season. They absolutely have to be. They should be. I believe they will be. They have a point guard. They have a legit scorer. And they defend the hell out of you. And they play New York basketball. I am higher on the Johnnies than any other team in the Big East except Villanova. Okay. All right. That's a, that's quite the way to, you know, drop a bombshell on there. Um, and, I mean, obviously the Big East tournament was surprising in itself. You know, you know, Butler beat Xavier to basically bury Xavier's NCAA tournament hopes. Yes. DePaul shockingly beat Providence. And then later in the week, obviously, we're going to – we see Georgetown going on this absolute tear – you know, they go perfect from the line to beat Nova in the quarterfinals, and then they beat Seton Hall, and then they decimate Creighton in the final uh, to win their first biggest tournament title in 14 years. And, you know, they had to win just to make the NCAA tournament, and they did. And, I mean, with Patrick Ewing, of course, coming back home, I know there was some controversy earlier in the week um, with, you know, his, you know, credentials being called into question for whatever reason. I mean, you know, I didn't really brush, I brushed it off when he made those comments. I remember in the press conference, I'm like, huh, this is interesting. And then it blew up on sports center and yeah, no, it, 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 it blew up. But in the end, I mean, Ewing kind of was at the heart of it, but his team was the story of that, of those four days in New York. Uh, they were, and they embodied him. They, they took on their coach's DNA. Georgetown really toughened up. They played terrific defense, something that had not been happening in the previous three seasons of the Patrick Ewing era. Patrick Ewing got his team really defending well. And he had a point guard that played the game tough as nails. And that's the thing for Georgetown, is that Dante Harris was terrific, terrific on that Big East tournament run. For a freshman to win Dave Gavin, most outstanding player, says it all. So you have a you have a point guard as a freshman who's delivering. You have a transfer in Chudier Belay who was playing at a high level for Georgetown, kind of out of nowhere. Jamarco Pickett and Javon Blair were both doing their part. Pickett defensively and Blair hitting those big-time shots. It felt like a run of destiny for Georgetown. That the year John Thompson passes away, right before the season started, that Georgetown wins the Big East tournament. It felt like fate. It felt like it was beyond basketball. 
And the Hoyas showed us what can happen. They showed us what is possible under Patrick Ewing. There's more work to be done. Georgetown has to, has to keep the players that are entering as freshmen now on their roster here for the next three, four years. Or if they leave for the NBA early, that's fine. But you can't, you got to have roster continuity, Tim. It's the key to everything. And it's going to be challenging for any program. But for Georgetown to bring in Aminu Muhammad, um, who's a big time, big time prospect on the wing. Ryan Mutombo, Dikembe's son, will add something in the post, I would think. Jordan Riley, another really interesting prospect as well at the guard position. Georgetown's going to be very young this year. They're going to be very young. In fact, next to Creighton, no team's going to rely on youth more than the Hoyas. Can these guys carve out their roles? Can they get better as the season goes on? And will they stick with the program heading into 2022-23? I'm not trying to say that that I I don't think Georgetown um, can win this year. I think they'll win some. I just don't think that they're a team that could win the that, that could come out of nowhere like they did last year. Last year's team had a couple of seniors that refused to lose. This year's team is going to have to relearn how to win. And the departure of Kudus Wahab to Maryland is a big blow to Georgetown's hopes for this season. They're a retooling team, but the Hoyas are a team that I think down the road, like next year, 2022-23, they should be back as a contender in the Big East Conference. So, I mean, speaking of, you know, the team that, the Hoyas beat in the Big East final. I mean, it's never easy being at the heart of controversy, but in, you know, the first week of March into the second week, you know, Creighton was at the heart of it with, uh, with Greg McDermott. You know, I've talked with uh, Jahens Maniga, a former player of his about it, um, you know, and I've been able to take in a lot of perspective about, you know, the whole situation involving, the incensive comment that he made in the locker room in Cincinnati back in late February. Uh, but I think overall as a whole, I think Greg McDermott is, has come out better from this. I think at the same time too, I mean, I don't think he could credit the program and the players for that matter for handling it the way that they did, um, you know, with playing the one game without McDermott as on the sidelines and then going to the big East tournament and navigating all that um, the way that they did. Um, and, 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 and ultimately making the sweet 16. Um, I think, you know, Creighton, I obviously it, they, they never would have wanted this, but you have to give credit where credit is due for, you know, the way that they handled the whole situation and then playing the way that they did, you know, in the big East tournament and then the NCAA tournament. Well, those were seniors who did not want to see their careers end. Uh, and then in Marcus Zagorowski's case, a three-year star. Mitch Ballock, terrific in everything he did at Creighton. Damian Jefferson and Denzel Mahoney, both versatile forwards who, who put together um, terrific runs with the Blue Jays. Mahoney transferring in. Uh, Jefferson with a little bit more experience than Mahoney, but they made for a, a dynamic duo. Christian Bishop transfers from the program, but before that, he really was playing good basketball. He was playing at a high level, Tim. And when you think about the fact that all those guys really played together, they played cohesively, um, Zagorowski being at the forefront of that. For those players, I, I don't know how you could handle 
everything that they went through there over the last couple of weeks of the season. And uh, the Greg McDermott remarks were earth shattering, but those players did come together and you credit those players for coming together in the way that they kept on fighting and the way they fought through um, as tough of a, an adverse situation that you can get through. And that's when your leader does something that, that you really, uh, that you really can't have words for. And they found a way, they found a way to keep on keeping on. And, and Greg McDermott made a mistake, um, a very, very large mistake. Um, and he's been so apologetic for that. And, you know, you, you hope that he's gotten the different help and you hope that he's been able to move forward and then he can continue to move forward um, both as a person and a coach. And, and I believe that he will. But for Creighton, those players came together. They found a way to get to the Sweet 16. They beat two teams that could have busted a bracket, UC Santa Barbara and Ohio. I mean, though both those teams were quality mid-major teams. They were some of the tougher teams on the bracket in terms of mid-majors. But Creighton, they defended Jason Preston really well against uh, Ohio. And against UC Santa Barbara, they found a way to make the late winning plays. And that, that goes back to Zegarowski. I mean, Marcus Zegarowski is a Blue Jay legend, should absolutely be a, a Creighton Hall of Famer, um, and, and then some. And if he had played a fourth year, we might be talking about jersey retirement for a four-year guy. But th this kid was just a game changer for the program. He played the game with such a toughness from the time he walked in the door. And that's the thing that Creighton's going to be looking for here this year. I mean, they bring in a terrific class. They bring in – I don't think people fully understand him. Creighton brings in the best recruiting class in the Big East. I mean, let, let, let me repeat that. Creighton brings in the best recruiting class in the Big East. So for the folks who say, oh, Villanova, UConn, they're the best recruiting. Xavier's great at recruiting. They are all good at recruiting. But we, we have to start looking at Creighton a little bit differently. Like, not as a good program. Creighton has a great program great program in fact 20 of the last 22 years they've they've won 20 or more games 20 of the last 22 years they've won 20 or more games they bring in arthur kaluma they bring in ryan nemhard they bring in mason miller they bring in trey alexander all four star recruits and you know i don't always go off the stars sometimes there's three stars who become much better players you and i both know that um but for creighton they're going to be younger this year. I don't think they finish in the top five or six of the Big East. I don't think they're an NCAA team. But I think that they have the – this is how you build a program, right? You bring in this freshman class. You build up their games. You get these guys going in the right direction. And then it all kind of builds up to a certain point where you go to the second weekend. You have a chance to make the Elite Eight and so on and so on. So the Jays went through a lot. They still made history this past year. And that history is only going to translate going forward. Yeah, you know, I, t I totally agree with you there on all fronts. You know, I think Arthur Kaluma has a legitimate shot at being a potential Big East freshman of the year, I, and, I, and I truly believe that. Um, so, and, and, and speaking of Marcus Zigorowski, you know, I, I think it's a good transition because back in late July, he was one of several Big East players to have his name called at this year's NBA draft. You know, this was a much better year for the Big East in terms of the NBA draft than the year before when we really didn't hear much other than other than Paul Reed and Sadiq Bay. This time around, you get Zigarowski was a second rounder. 
as was Jeremiah Robinson Earl, as was Sandro Mamukelashvili. And of course, we we can't go without mentioning the lottery pick, James Booknight out of UConn. I think a, a very, I, I think a, as good a year in the NBA draft as we've seen the Big East since realignment. It was right there in terms of the conference as a whole, no question about it, because you've had those years where Villanova has has loaded up on the draft picks. I mean, 2018, when all those guys went, Dante DiVincenzo, Jalen Brunson, you had Mikhail Bridges, you had Omari Spellman. But this year was a wholesome year for the league, and it was the most schools represented um, with four in, in several years. And for – for the Big East to have Sandro Mamukelashvili and Marcus Egorowski drafted, that stood out to me. It really stood out to me. Because you're talking about great college players, Tim, who were coming into the draft combine and draft events, and we were saying, not sure how well their game translates to the NBA necessarily, but clearly there's NBA teams that thought that they that those games did translate to the NBA or else they wouldn't have picked those guys that night. So that was the big takeaway is we knew that James Booknight was going to get drafted high, and, and I think that the Hornets got him as a steal. Uh, to get him outside the top 10 is terrific. The fact that Booknight fell outside the top 10 and the Hornets were able to pick him up, it's a great value pick, and now he teams up with LaMelo Ball in Charlotte. Robinson Earl, he's he's going to get playing time, a ton of it, because the Oklahoma City Thunder are, are kind of in a rebuild behind uh, Shai Gilgis Alexander. Mamu Kelash really showed us during summer league. He, he was very, very impressive. Very impressive. You know why? As a passer, he's a facilitator. He makes plays. Like Mamu, he really fit the mold of an NBA playmaker, at least at the summer league level. It's not the NBA level, but there's – when you could – playmate the way he did in summer league it says to the bucks hey we got to keep watching this guy maybe he gets a shot on our roster or maybe he's that last guy off that if somebody gets hurt he's going to come on david duke also impressed me even though he went out and drafted david duke played very well for the brooklyn nets in summer league better than zagorowski did frankly and duke went undrafted going undrafted sometimes isn't the worst route but for the biggies to get those four picks uh first time they've had four or more schools represented in a draft and i think uh, six years. This was a really progressive step for the Big East Conference to get four teams represented. Because when you're in a 10 or 11 team league, you know, and 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 you have the ACC, you have the SEC, you have early guys that leave early. Um, and, and you do tier two, but I love seeing some of those guys get drafted late. It says a lot about their ability. And it says a lot about the fact that organizations do respect what you do in college at times. Mamu Kelashvili and Zagorowski made it so hard to not get selected because of just how hard they played at the college level. And those guys are winners. Sandro Mamu Kelashvili is a winner. Look at what he did against Butler um, in his junior season at the Prudential Center. Look at what he's done at Marquette and key road games. He's been fantastic at the five-serve forum. Look at what he's done against Villanova. He's had good games against them. Had a great game on the road there. They just came up short last year. And Zagorowski lifted Creighton to the Sweet 16, their first ever in this current format. So really good to see. Yeah. And speaking of really good to see, I think this is about as high of a note as you can end on. Obviously this past weekend, Naismith basketball hall of fame inductions were going on and it was a big weekend for the big East with uh, Jay Wright. And of course, um, um, 
Mel Ackerman getting inducted. Um, just watching it from afar, how great was it to see uh, two people that we see as modern day legends really in the sport um, get immortalized? Breathtaking. Breathtaking. So well-deserved. So cool to be there in Springfield on Saturday night at the Mass Mutual Center. I was blown away by some of the speeches. This was a class that included Chris Weber, Chris Bosch, right? I mean, Ben Wallace, Paul Pierce, you know, like just absolutely spectacular. Bill Russell as a coach. I was walking into the arena, Tim. I'm in line and somebody behind me goes, hey, are you in line? It was Dr. J. <laughs> I go, go ahead. Go ahead. Because when you're Dr. J, you can walk right in front of me. I go right ahead. Absolutely. Um, and he did. And, and as he should, Dr. J should be at the front of every line. Uh, but for Val Ackerman, Val Ackerman is the perfect example that hard work pays off. She gets hired as a staff attorney in 1988 by the NBA. Her hard work results in her becoming David Stern's special assistant. She has such a knowledge of women's sports and has such a desire to grow the game. We talk about the global impact of the NBA. How about the NBA's impact on females, on women? The NBA, unlike the, it's not a knock, but look at the other major sports leagues. There's really not a women's counterpart that's comparable. The NBA went above and beyond and said, we're going to find a way. We're going to find a way to make this happen. And Val Ackerman is the first woman to successfully start and maintain a professional women's sports league. And she established the WNBA. She's the first president of that league. And 25 years in, look what the WNBA has meant both on basketball and society. It's grown the women's game. It's been amazing for the women's game. It's been amazing for the game. Val Ackerman is the main proponent of that. She, she did something that people didn't think was possible, Tim. And then with the Big East, how many people thought this new conference isn't going to work? It's not going to be as powerful as the old Big East. And there's nothing like the old Big East. But a lot of people thought it wouldn't work. A lot of people thought it would fail. A lot of people thought football would keep dominating and that the Big East wouldn't have a say in college sports. In the midst of football chaos right now, who is, who is stable right now, Tim? In the midst of all the chaos, which conference actually has a little bit of stability right now? The Big East. Because they, they don't have football, but they know who they are and they're good at it. It's okay sometimes to not be the very, very, very best, but if, you're, if you try your best and work your hardest – and you're really good at who you are and what you do, you're going you're gonna to do enough. You're going to win enough. And the Big East has done that because Val Ackerman has done things that are forward-minded. She got a Madison Square Garden long-term extension done. She got UConn back in the Big East. And she's helped men's basketball to grow. And there's two national championships in the last five years. 2020 doesn't count uh, because of COVID. Villanova's won two of the last five national titles. Says it all. Jay Wright has done it all, has done it all. A combined 12 Big East championships, two national titles, the Associated Press's coach of the decades in the 2010s, six-time Big East coach of the year, 
And over the last eight seasons, Tim Best, over the last eight seasons, Jay Wright, I have it here. I want to make sure I get this right. He is... Let me get this here for you because I'm going to get it for you. He has an incredible record um, over the last eight seasons. And I have it here as we're talking. I know this is, this is great radio, right, that I'm looking it up. But it's such a big stat, folks, that I have to look it up for you just to make sure that, that I don't get it wrong. And I want you to listen to this because I've got it here. Over the last eight seasons, Villanova basketball has gone 233 wins to 45 losses. 233 and 45. Nobody's won like Jay Wright. And that attitude mantra, the culture he's built, the man he is, he's a Hall of Fame person. Credit to both Jay Wright and Val Ackerman. First time they were nominees, they become Hall of Famers. First ballot material, so well-deserved. And just watching, you know, I remember, you know, just the fact that both of them are getting, I mean, it's about time, you know, even as a Hall of Famer, I don't think Jay Wright gets enough credit for being as good of a coach as he is. I mean, he was great at Hofstra, and then he comes to Villanova. It takes him some time, but he builds them into legitimately one of the best programs in the entire country, one of the top 15, maybe arguably a top 10 overall in in the last decade. I, I, I think you can easily make that argument. And then, of course, Val Ackerman getting the respect that she deserves uh, being the she's a pioneer, a trailblazer. And it's about time that she got the recognition. So, uh, you know, I, I personally congratulate Jay and Val on their induction. Um, and, you know, like obviously Hall of Fame inductees on, you know, on the basketball side, but they're Hall of Fame people, as, as you know, of having worked so closely with them. Yes, absolutely. I, I, they've both become friends of mine, and I have nothing but amazing things to say about both of them. Val Ackerman has taught me so much. Her example, her work ethic, her care and love for people around her, the way that she cares about her colleagues, her coworkers, the people that work for her, it's amazing. It's such a, an inspiration to work with someone who leads but also cares about the others around her. That's who Val Ackerman is. And because of Val Ackerman, we're all better. She's built character out of all of us. And for Jay Wright, there's never been a moment where I haven't been impressed by Jay Wright. He carries himself so incredibly well. He wins at the highest levels. And his kids play so hard for him because they love him. That attitude that we talk about with Villanova, it sounds cliche. It is real. It's who the Wildcats are. Watch them warm up before a game. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. It's amazing. They talk. They communicate. They're together. And when you are together as an organization, it starts with the guy at the top. Jay Wright is the best leader in college basketball at this moment. I think that's a really apropos way to, you know, wrap up this opening segment of the season finale. Uh, you know, obviously this is a wild year all around just in college basketball. I know in the Big East it certainly was, um, you know, with 
a lot of teams hitting highs, some teams hitting lows, other teams not even being able to play a game until four weeks into the season like DePaul. But I think overall, I think we're all lucky that we got through this. We were able to crown a national champion, have a successful tournament, uh, albeit there was only one instance where a team was infected by COVID and had to withdraw from the tournament. That was VCU. But overall, I think now that we're through this, you know, it's on to bigger and better things in 2022. Am I right, John? Oh, cannot wait, Tim. Cannot wait to see you inside buildings uh, and all of our media colleagues, all the fans, all the followers. I love all the engagement. Cannot wait for a new college basketball season, a new Big East season. That's what this is all about. And uh, you and I, I know how much we both love it. And it's that much sweeter with fans in the stands, seeing people like you on press row. Cannot wait to see you, partner. And it's always great to to join you inside the Igloo, one of the very best podcasts around. So I love, love joining you, Tim. Congrats on all your success and cannot wait to see you this hoop season. I really appreciate that, John. Again, the one and only John Fanta opening up season, uh, the season two finale of the Igloo. I'm going to wrap up the rest of the season. Of course, I got a lot of thanks to give out for all my guests that I've had this year, including some that I never envisioned I'd ever have. Uh, and that's coming up right after this. Welcome back inside the Igloo, y'all, for the Season 2 finale. Can't believe we're already here, but I think today was a proper day to drop this, considering now every single Big East team, at least on the men's side, now has their official non-conference schedule released as Villanova became the last of those 11 uh, to release their schedule as they released it earlier today. Now, other big happenings in the Big East in 2020-21? Well, two coaches were canned in the Big East. I know we talked about Greg McDermott, you know, finding himself in the middle of controversy and he nearly was either fired or he nearly resigned from Creighton, but two coaches that did see the end of their tenures, Steve Wojciechowski at Marquette and Dave Lato at DePaul and for Lato. That was his second tenure as the head coach of the blue demons. And for DePaul, a disappointing season going just two and 13 in conference and they were majorly affected by COVID. They didn't get to play a game until December 23rd, which was exactly exactly four weeks after the season officially began in college basketball. And not to mention, they didn't win a single conference home game. That's the first time that has been done in the Big East since realignment. There have been a few teams that have gone winless on the road, like last year's DePaul team in 2020, as well as 2016 St. John's. And I believe those are the only two. But 2021 Blue Demons, they went winless at home in Big East play. Their only wins in Chicago came in non-conference play against Western Illinois and Valparaiso. And to replace Dave Lato, they went out and got Tony Stubblefield, 
an assistant coach under Dana Altman at Oregon, and we've all seen what Oregon's done. They've been one of the best programs in the country over the last 10 years or so. I want to know about 10. Yeah, 10-ish, because, I mean, look, they've made the Sweet 16. They've now made the Sweet 16 five times since 2013. So that's five times in the last eight tournaments, and they've made the tournament every year with the exception of 2020 with COVID. They would have made it anyway. They only missed the tournament one time since 2013, and that was in 2018. So Tony Stubblefield comes over from Oregon, and he's got a tall task ahead of him. You know, this is going to be a younger squad. They lose... Arguably the two most talented players, Charlie Moore and Romeo Weems. Moore to Miami on the transfer, and then Romeo Weems to the draft. Well, well, he didn't get drafted, but I mean, he played summer league, so lost him turning, turning pro. So it's going to be a tough hill to climb for Stubblefield, and you know the 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 hand he's been dealt isn't a great one. So I guess he's just going to have to. You know, he's been given lemons. You know, all he can hope is that he can find a way to make good lemonade out of it. And then at Marquette, Steve Wojciechowski was fired. And by the way, you know, at least Dave Lato got to win another Big East tournament game this past year. You know, they upset Providence uh, before, you know, ultimately getting decimated by a red-hot UConn squad. But as for Marquette, they did not fare well in the Big East tournament. They played Georgetown in the opening round. They were the ninth seed in the conference tournament. And Georgetown just absolutely whacked him. And in that game, Marquette, for lack of a better word, lacked heart. Honestly, the only guy that really showed up that game is DJ Carton. And he's gone. And that Marquette team was pretty underwhelming. And at times inconsistent. Actually, not just at times. A lot of the time, they were inconsistent. They beat Wisconsin at home at the buzzer. They played tough, but lost at an eventual Final Four team, UCLA. They went down to Chapel Hill and beat North Carolina pretty much easily. But where's the inconsistency come in? You know, getting up big against a team like UConn. And even when James Booknight goes down with an injury, that ends up sidelining him for the next six weeks. They still lose to them, blowing a big lead. You know, you want to talk about highs and lows. You know, they go into they go into Omaha and beat Creighton. What what's the opposite side of that? They lose at home to DePaul in January. And it looked like they were turning the corner in, you know, late February, you know, getting that win at North Carolina. Winning at DePaul, beating Xavier at home, but in the Big East tournament, they were just flat. They lacked heart. They basically just gave up. It looked like they just gave up. And I know they didn't actually give up. But mentally, you can tell when a team's checked out. Especially when you know you're not going to make the NCAA tournament. And that was Marquette. 
they had a chance to, you know, take some momentum, you know, and really make a push towards, like, you know, making maybe the semifinals on Friday. But instead, you know, they just threw in the towel once Georgetown, you know, came out hot and started pounding on them in the first half. And, you know, I talked about this with Alan Bykowski from, from Crack Sidewalks. The Wojo era will forever be remembered as being underwhelming. You know, and for the most part, with the exception of maybe one or two seasons, his teams underperformed. It happened this past season. It happened in 2020. It happened in 2019, especially with how they were with two weeks left in the regular season. They were 23-4. and four, And all they had to do, they didn't have to do much. But they were on the cusp of winning the Big East regular season title outright in 2019. Winning at the Finn against Villanova on February 27, 2019, they would have won the Big East regular season title. They would have gotten at least a share of that had they won. But lo and behold, they didn't. They lost in that start of this huge downward spiral where they lost at home to Creighton. They lose at Seton Hall, giving up an 18-0 run to end the game. They go from up nine to losing by nine in the end in six and a half minutes in the last, you know, to end the game. And then they lose at home to Georgetown. And then, you know, Big East Tournament, you know, they whack St. John's, good. Then they lose to Seton Hall in the Big East semifinal in a game that I I don't like talking about, even as a Seton Hall guy, even though Seton Hall won, because it was an ugly basketball game marred by bad officiating because they lost control of everything, given... Everything that happened between, you know, all the shit talking and barking back and forth and the physicality. They lost control of it. And they try to get it back by blowing the whistle too many damn times. But but that's beside the point. And then you fast forward to the NCAA tournament and they get absolutely murdered by John Morant and Murray State in the first round. Might have been the easiest 12-5 upset to ever pick. And I could probably bring that up 30 years from now. And it will still be the easiest one to ever pick. I'm going to talk about 2018. I mean, they were like, they didn't really exceed expectations, but they probably could have been a hell of a lot better. 2017 was probably the only year where they actually exceeded expectations. No one was really giving them a fighting chance, but yet they were able to make the NCAA tournament. 2016, they had a McDonald's All-American, Henry Ellenson. And yet, they fell flat in a lot of ways. They lost at home to Belmont to start the year. Iowa crushed them in the the first ever Gavi games in Milwaukee. They lost at home to DePaul. Just like in 2021. I mean, yeah, you beat Ben Simmons in LSU. You beat Wisconsin on the road. But, like, their non-conference schedule was mostly cupcakes. So 11-2 is not that impressive. And they were inconsistent. You know, they swept Providence somehow. But you lose at home to DePaul? Make that make sense. And then, of course, 2015, I mean... 
one of the worst teams in New Big East history, you know, winning just four conference games. They only went 13 and 19. You know, they finished tied for dead last with Creighton that year. So, you know, and it was time for a change. And I don't blame Marquette for doing that. I thought it would be, it would come a little bit later, but, you know, the time for change was called for, you know, pretty urgently. And who who do they get to replace him? They somehow lure Shaka Smart. As predicted by Allen. Great call, by the way, my man. They lure Shaka Smart from Texas. The team that just won the Big 12 tournament. That had just been, by the way, upset in the first round of the NCAA tournament by Abilene Christian. Shaka's time at Texas probably isn't going to be remembered very well because of the fact that he choked in the tournament multiple times. And that includes this past year against Abilene Christian. They blew a big lead against Nevada in 2018 in the first round. And he missed the tournament in 17 and 19. And I'm pretty sure in 2016, I think that was his first year there, they lost on a half-court buzzer beater by uh, Jesperson from Northern Iowa. But Marquette's going to roll the dice on him. He's a Wisconsin kid. He knows how to establish a culture. Look at what he did at VCU, taking them from first four to final four in 2011, which UCLA became the first team to do that since that VCU team this past year. And by the way, Marquette's going to see UCLA later in in, in December. Just want to throw that out there, but I'll touch on that another time. But... What happens? You lose Dawson Garcia to North Carolina, strangely enough. Speaking of being in the ACC, they lost Theo John, who's using his extra year at Duke in Coach K's farewell season. You lose DJ Carton to the pros. I mean, they lost a lot, including Samir Torrance, by the way. Samir Torrance and Kobe McEwen. You lose them, too. This is going to be a tough first year for Shaka. But obviously I'll touch on that later on. You know, once, you know, season three gets rolling and we look ahead, you know, you know, you know, we'll get to talk to, hopefully we'll get to talk to Shaka and everyone else at Big East Media Day, um, which I'll have more details on, you know, as, as we, as we go along. But, you know, let's, I mean, let's be real. Much like Wojo's first year, I think, Shaka's first year in Milwaukee is going to be a little bit rough. But he's a great coach. He's proven that he's a great coach. And he's proven that he can win no matter at what level. So in due time, I believe that he's going to turn Marquette around back into that consistent NCAA tournament team like they were in the late 2000s into the early 2010s. Under Buzz Williams. I might add. So, those are the coaching changes in the Big East. And meanwhile, on the women's side, I think, you know, I want to touch on that too. Overall, a very good year for the Big East. UConn, as expected, dominated the conference in their first year back in the league. And of course, Paige Beckers, I mean, I'm only saying she's the man because... You know, 
shout out to Becky Lynch, even though not really the big fan of her now. And I hope Becky doesn't hear that and comes and finds me and kicks my butt. But Paige Beckers is the man in women's college basketball right now. And she's going to be the man when she gets to the WNBA in a few years. Kind of the same way Sabrina Ionescu is right now. I mean, not being like a bona fide superstar where she's the face of the league. And that's going to come in due time. But like, she's going to be an instant star in the pros. Like Sabrina. That much is true. So, as for the rest of the league, I mean, this was a bit of a surprising year in the Big East. DePaul had a down year. As a matter of fact, they missed the NCAA tournament. Which was a shock in itself. Seton Hall exceeded expectations by performing really, really well. And credit that to, you know, the addition of um, Andre Espinosa Hunter. You know, I talk about that with Tony Bazella, like... It's pretty damn good. But I mean, just looking at the standings, I mean, I mean, there were some teams, I mean, Xavier only got 10 games in. Which, you know, that's a far cry. I mean, and the, and the weird thing, so no team was able to get all 20 games in. The most that a team got in was... 18, which was done by a few schools, UConn being one of them, as well as Marquette and Butler. Those are the only other teams. Villanova had a legitimate chance to make the NCAA tournament, but they weren't invited. And then, as for the Marquette Golden Eagles, they found their way to the NCAA tournament. However, they were eliminated early by Virginia Tech. So, I mean, a a down year for the conference. Only two teams make the tournament. But, you know, with a lot of the talent that's returning, I mean, Seton Hall's got a lot coming back. UConn's got a lot coming back, including Paige Beckers. DePaul should bounce back strongly. I think Villanova should bounce back strongly. And uh, Creighton's going to have a tough time bouncing back, but I think they should too. I think Providence has a lot of promise. St. John should have a much better year. I mean, there's a lot to look forward to, not just on the men's side of college basketball in the Big East, but on the women and on the women's side too. Look for them, like the men's side, to have a bounce back year overall in the conference. So, but again, you know, that's a lot to look forward to, you know, in Season 3, and I think that's the proper way to wrap up Season 2. To tell you, there's a lot to look forward to in the 2021-22 season. Before I wrap this season up in this season finale, you know, I did this to wrap up Season 1 last year. I'm going to bring it back for Season 2 because expressing gratitude is so important these days. You know, it can really make a difference in terms of, you know, brightening people's days and, you know, giving them validation, really. Making them feel good about themselves. Everyone deserves to feel good about themselves, you know? So, I'd like to thank the following 
guests from season two that I that I had this season. Of course, my guy Derek Gordon, Matt DeMarinis from White and Blue Review, and the and Scurry and the Scrub podcast. The front office guys, my guys Pat Lawless, CJ Nobile, Tom Hess, Jeffrey Grozel, Malcolm Bernard, Adam Giardino from uh, you know UConn radio broadcaster, and of course UConn alum. My man, Coach Shaw, Shaheen Holloway, Seton Hall, great, and now the head coach of St. Peter's. Uh, like Matt DeMarinis, um, I want to thank all my other, you know, and and like Adam Giardino too, got, um, the guys I had for my Biggie's Roundtable um, right around Thanksgiving, uh, Dalton Allison, Thomas Cavanaugh, Captain X, Jason Meyer, Josh Mullenix, the Providence Crier, Mike Surrett, Alan Bykowski, as I mentioned him before, Eugene Repay, Bobby Bancroft, Dan Stack, who I had on to talk to DePaul, who's back in January. Of course, friend of the show, Patrick Madden, same with Sean Paul. Uh, the the great Dave Sims, uh, of uh, broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners and, you know, various Big East games that you'll hear throughout the year. Dave, you're the man for that. Seton Hall PA announcer Tim McClune. Former St. John star, uh, former St. John's uh, walk-on Elijah Holyfield. I call him the Seton Hall equivalent, the uh, St. John's equivalent of me as a super fan. DJ Sutherland, DSPN, um, Troy Moriello, uh, my guy Will Artino, big swag, um, Jaden Daly and Jason Garrett from Daily Dose of Hoops, my guy D Ray, Daryl Reynolds, of course the guy you just heard on this episode, John Fanta, Matt Majinski former colleague of mine for WSOU and Seton Hall in general, Martin Crumple, Ethan Roggy, my guy, Jahens Maniga from the J podcast, Austin Chapman, Dave Popkin, uh, Dave Popkin, I should say, um, who calls Seton Hall radio, uh, basketball on the radio with Gary, the great Gary Cohen. Of course, the guy, um, my, some of my close friends I had on for my 100th episode special, uh, for the Psy Mafia, Dan Letso, Tom Golombeski, Andrew Smedberg, and then, of course, a lot of, some of my closest friends that I also had on, Mike Lavero, Nick Romano, and Matt Lamb. Of course, Mr. Bracketology from ESPN himself, Joel Lenardi, the great Brian Custer. Uh, congrats on the gig at, at ESPN, by the way. I, I've watched you on SportsCenter numerous times. You're killing it, and keep killing it. You're the man. Clayton Collier, my former sports director from WSOU. Um, keep doing your thing down in Memphis. Jonathan Warner from Making the Madness. Tremendous bracketologist as well. Um, Creighton legend Marcus Foster, a two-time All-Big East first-team guy. Tariq Turner, color commentator from FS1 College Hoops. And former St. John's... Yeah, you know, you know, well, that's just, well, I should I think I worded that wrong. St. John's alum... Dwayne Wilson, Derek Wilson, unrelated by the way, but both went to Marquette. Derek being a TBT champion with Golden Eagles. Sean McDermott, who you know had a very good rookie season, you know between the G League bubble uh, with the Memphis Hustle, and then of course with the Grizzlies in the NBA. Steve Heigl, Jordan Scurry from Scurry in the Scrub, Ashton Gibbs, the brother of Sterling, uh, who had a very good college career at Pitt. Uh, my guy, Travis Diener, I wish I got to talk to him before the championship game had Marquette made it, but obviously that didn't happen. Uh, but Trav, you know, Travis is still the man. Appreciated him coming on again this summer to talk TBT. Uh, my guy, Quincy McKnight, who played for Mental Toughness at TBT, had a good showing there, although it was one and done. It was still a good showing, nonetheless, against a very good team, LA Cheaters, that featured 
some former first-round draft picks in the NBA. And then, of course, um, my first guest on the women's basketball side, the great Tony Bazella from Seton Hall, who I have the pleasure of knowing, you know, and calling a colleague and, of course, a friend. And then, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, J.P. McCure. I never thought I'd ever have him on the igloo, but when I did, my God, it was so goddamn fun. And he made it fun. So, J.P., you're the man for doing that. I got to get you back on soon uh, to talk about, obviously, overseas. And, of course, your TBT experience. You know, it, it got cut short, sadly, because I know I know he got hurt. But, and I know for a fact, had you not gotten hurt, y'all were going to make a, a much deeper run. Like, Blue Collar, you did the team that, you know, knocked you out. But, and I know you're going to try to come back and get some revenge next summer. That I know for a fact, my man. And then, of course, Shavar Reynolds, a guy who I had the pleasure of knowing at Seton Hall when he was a walk-on, at least my fresh, my senior year, and then went on to be a scholarship player and the starting point guard this past year. Uh, appreciated his perspective on COVID. And Shavar, hope you're listening. Kill it this year at Monmouth, my man. Make that last year count. And, you know, especially being a homecoming, you know, show off for your hometown, show off for your area. I believe in you, bro. And then, of course, Daniel Ochefu, who I had for a bonus interview during TBT, as I had him on right before the start of the Super 8, you know, back in, at the end of July into early August. Uh, it was really awesome to have him back on the Igloo. You know, I had him way back in November 2019, one of my first guests I ever had on the Igloo. So it's really, really cool to, you know, you know with a, several of these names that you just heard, you know, bringing them back on the Igloo, you know, from season one. And, of course, you know, bringing them multiple times, like Jahan's Managa um, in, in this season. So, to all of my guests, thank you for thank you for coming on. I look forward to having hopefully some of you back on again. And to all of you who have listened all season long, thank you so much. Get ready for an even more packed season three. Take care. I'll see you on the other side.